0: Thank you, Valerie, and uh, good morning to you all. We come this week to the end of the church year. We have a a cycle that we follow from one year to the next that runs from Advent, and next Sunday will be the start of a new cycle, Advent Sunday, and uh, this Sunday is Christ the King, And both of those themes, both the first Sunday and the the concluding Sunday, focus on the kingship of Jesus. And I want to highlight two themes in particular as we reflect on the passages we've just heard. One is the theme of assurance, and the other is the theme of accountability. And both themes, as I've uh, reflected on them, do fit within this overall um, uh, category where we've been talking about the last um, six weeks or so as for such a time as this. Now, it's true for all times and all places, but it seems to me both these themes of assurance and accountability are particularly appropriate for the world as we experience it, as we perceive it, and as we um, live within it. So, Christ the King. The theme of Christ the King is so large that I often find uh, any words are just so inadequate to describe the enormity of the truth. This is the bedrock of our faith, of our hope, of our conviction. And it is one in which is not so much a triumphant, sort of, uh, you know, our Lord is the one who's king of the castle type of image. It's actually much more um, widespread and profound in terms of the truth that lies behind it. Christ is the king. It's not that Christ will become the king at the end of the age when Christ returns. It is that through the work that Jesus was obedient to, that he undertook, that he has been risen, so he had been raised triumphant and placed in that place of his uh, sovereignty. He has proven himself through all that he has done unlike any other but let's tease it out a little bit further now in my Facebook feed in the last week I've been uh, engaging in a little um, backwater of discussion that you may have missed it's a big question that has troubled uh, Anglican ministers around the world at the past past week and a friend of mine uh, Bishop Mark Calder Bishop in uh, of Bathurst I knew it was one of the bees um, he was exercising his mind and he says I do not know which collect to use this week can someone help me and see behind this I know you might have missed it Um, you you might have missed this particular uh, moment of angst amongst clergy as we work through it what do we do Um, you see there's a, uh, a change was brought in the Anglican church and we're still getting used to that change I mean, it only happened 100 years ago in the 1920s, but we're still getting used to this change, that this final Sunday of the church year was changed to Christ the King. Who thought, you know, and we're just getting our heads around it. See, the problem is that there is a time-honoured colic from the previous way we used to approach the final Sunday of the church year. It used to be known as Stir-Up Sunday. Now, anyone know why we called it Stir-Up Sunday? Uh, Well, you were at the the 8.30 service, Raquel. You did know it anyway. A whole heap of the 8.30 service put their hands up and they knew exactly what I was talking about. You see, Stir-Up Sunday was the reminder that this is the Sunday to start the Christmas pudding. And people didn't realise that by changing the liturgical cycle, Christmas was in threat. The reminder that this is the time to start stirring a Christmas pudding. So if you haven't got the message, this is the week. If you want to really allow it to mature in time for Christmas, this is still the stir-up Sunday. And yes, it's Christ the King. The reason it was known as stir-up Sunday, because people took the first two words of the traditional collect in the Book of Common Prayer. Stir up, we beseech thee, O Lord. Oh, okay, time to go stirring for the Christmas pudding probably should finish the sentence before you leap off in that direction. Stir up, O Lord, the wills of your faithful people that they, plenteously bringing forth the fruit of good works, may of thee be plenteously rewarded. You live in a, a world of grace. It's a world in which we receive as well as that which we contribute and give. So Christ the King. So as this debate raged across the Facebook pages, well, have got four comments, that was fair enough, I came up with a, I thought, a very profound Anglican response, which is yes and no. Why not do both? Who thought? So my friend, the Bishop Mark of Bathurst, said, thank you, that is my solution. So hence we're going to have both collects for this week because both speak to the passages that we have before us. Let me unpack it a little bit further and why I actually believe it is for a time such as this that it is so important. The first passage from Ephesians 1, the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul is really in his uh, fruitful space. He has just produced an incredible um, series of insights and revelations about why it is that, that Jesus is the one, who is to be trusted and every spiritual blessing that God provides has come in and through the working of Jesus? and so he draws it to a culmination and by the end of this chapter, chapter one, he's now expressing his prayers for the church in Ephesus. Now Paul had spent some three years there. He knew the church well and the whole region of Asia Minor, uh, modern Turkey, had the gospel had gone out and had been very fruitful. So the tone of Paul at this part of his letter is like that of a really proud grandparent. He's got a granny's, grandparents' brag book. You know, it used to be in the old days, you get the photos out. These days, it's the phone. You sit down. Oh look God, look at the latest photos. You know, we go through them. Well, Paul is proud of his church in Ephesus, and he's been talking about. I'm just when I think of you and I pray about you. I thank God for you. And he wants to impart some of that grandparent-type wisdom to his offspring. So he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Two things he really wants them to know. So that you may know him better. Not know about him, but know him. That's a relational term. The same as you know your family, you know your parentage, you know those who are um, who is there for us. Praise it through the Spirit of wisdom and revelation that you may know Him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That's a it's a wonderfully evocative phrase, isn't it? The eyes of your heart, as though the the eyes open up the truths of your heart, but also the eyes are sparkling. It's almost like that image or someone who's had an experience um, that has just absolutely energised them, infused them, whatever it may have been. Um, you know, I had an experience of pruning proteas and leucodendrons last week. I was incredibly excited. Fiona's telling me, you know, I came in with shears in hand. And Fiona said, put the shears down. That's enough. Um, but that's when you have that sparkly look in your face. And Paul's praying that... These offsprings, his grandchildren in the gospel, would have that sparkling look in their face because they they know this truth. And it's just going as deep as it can go. Pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Now it's a slight hint that I actually my eyes were drawn to the words for us. I actually hadn't noticed that before. I know in this passage about the glory, the the the, the wonder of what Jesus had done, but it is for us. Sometimes the sovereignty of God is preached in an oppressive way, in a fearful way. As though, you know, how dare you even think about coming in the presence of God? The sovereignty of God isn't there as a a power play or something to to threaten us. It's there for us. It's God actually saying, I've got your back. I'm there for you. That power is the same as the mighty strength. And we'll come on to that in a minute. You see, up to this point in this amazing chapter one of Ephesians, um, verses three through to verse fourteen is all one long sentence in, in the Greek. Paul was on a run. He had a scribe, and what it, imagine the poor scribe saying? Hey, I'm Paul. I think I've got it. Paul describes all the things that Jesus was obedient to and had done within God's mission. Jesus uniquely had been tasked with with uh, being at the epicenter of the kingdom of God changing the world and confronting the powers and all those who would challenge it. And Paul summarises it 14 times. He actually says, in him, in Christ, through him, over and over and over again. He says, everything that we need in this world has been done and is been done and will be done through Jesus Christ. Now Paul was speaking here to the church in Ephesus and Ephesus renowned themselves their reputation has been particularly well connected to the spiritual powers they had the one of the great wonders of the ancient world the temple of artemis of the ephesians four times bigger than the parthenon and they said that we are connected with the deeper powers, they had a lot of mystery cults and other groups who claimed to have those connections. And as if at this point, Paul was almost saying, you think they're powers? <laughs> Let me show you real power. Yeah. And that is Jesus. He's encouraged them. Don't be overwhelmed by this world that you see and all their claims and all the, uh, all the, you know, the narratives that go around it. Jesus is the one. So he says that power, what does that power look like? And he says, well, it's the same power as the mighty strength that God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Paul says no one else can claim that. Jesus uniquely can claim that. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked, this stage, Paul's almost thinking, I'm going to think of every superlative I can think of and I'm going to throw it in there. Not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And he hasn't finished. <laughs> he then goes on, and God placed all things under his feet, the feet of the one who has been obedient, who's been made perfect out of the work that he's been done, to use the language of Hebrews. Christ has achieved everything that was asked of him. And so God appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. We live in a world, especially in the Western world, just desiring to find more fullness. How can we fill our life with any sense of purpose or meaning? It's just so many people with all the wealth and things available to us find, but I still feel empty. I still feel as though there's something missing there and run after this voice and that voice and that direction and this promise trying to find, to fill that void. And I've yet to come anyone who's actually come back and saying, and it's really satisfied. So either I need to have more or I've got to find something different. In this whole chapter 1 of Ephesians, where Paul started by saying how every spiritual blessing God has provided, he now concludes it by saying everything we need to know what it means to live, to live well, to have a full life, is provided through Jesus. Anything else we don't need. So how is this a message for our own time and age? As we look at the news feed, as we hear the stories overseas of wars and violence and atrocities, it weighs heavily on us. And we find ourselves asking, Lord, what is going on? Is the world out of control? As we see political movements and things that are, are fearful, I think, And we think, who is there to be trusted, especially in the area of power? In this passage, I think Paul was sort of saying to us, take a deep breath. Remember this one truth. Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. And by the way, that means that you are not. We don't need to be. If we are trying to be Lord, if we are trying to have control, then our anxiety levels just keep on building because we realise that we can't control the world, even our own immediate world. But the message is saying, God's saying, I'm there. I've got this. There are storms. There are times of things are awful. There's no pretending it. It's actually reflected throughout Scripture. There's no bland fantasy world in it but in the midst of it God says and my mission is prevailing and will prevail despite that messiness. So it is a message for our own day and age to be reminded. Christ is the king and is there any more worthy, trustworthy, faithful, loving hands to trust our life and our own community, too, in the hands of Jesus, that is the assurance that we have as we celebrate it. Then we come to the second passage, and I resisted temptation to put up a dozen photos of sheep and goats mixing together. There are some all Enormously cute sheep and goats that you can find on the photos. I did manage to get two that I'll keep it to it. But apparently it's a thing. You would actually herd the sheep and goats together because they eat the same grass. Who knew? Um, and shepherds would actually have them together and when they needed to separate them before they had the age of the sheepdogs, they would actually know how to call out the sheep and the goats. I did lose 10 minutes last night looking at sheepdogs rounding up sheep. are uh, amazing ones now from drones as you see as they run around and round them all up, but I, I spared you that particular clip. Just. I did come up with this one. It actually isn't about the sheep and the goats and the qualities of the sheep and the goat, and actually it's not a parable about the sheep and the goats. It's just a simile that Jesus uses at the start. So, you know, there comes a time when a shepherd will need to separate the sheep and the goats, usually to decide who's actually going to be the roast for that night or not, but that's another question. The point is the moment of separation and Jesus then uses that to talk about how amongst all nations there will be a separating of the people who are known as, one of, as the righteous people, the people who are part of God's people and those who are not. The background for the image, if you want to go deeper in it, is actually Daniel chapter 7 where the Son of Man comes of the authority from the heavens and brings judgment upon all nations in that space. How does that speak to us in our own present time, in the separation of the sheep and the goat? First of all, it's not trying to determine who is a sheep and who, who is a goat, who is worthy. And it's amazing as you look at some of the commentaries on it how much uh, some commentators get an absolute twist on this, this story because they think through, but it can't be that we're judged depending on our good works. Paul would never allow that. And so there's a whole lot of uh, explanations of how it sort of is, but it's not quite what you think in terms of the interpretation. The big mistake is confusing Paul and Matthew. Don't use Paul to interpret Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel has got its own focus and themes... It's not saying that Paul's truth, that Paul talks about how works can never save us, we can never do things that earn our salvation or to merit it in any way. That, that is true, but it's not Matthew's point. If you use Matthew to interpret this parable, it becomes actually fairly straightforward. Remember the Sermon on the Mount, which Matthew has a whole highlight, three chapters of Matthew's gospel. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers. And so Jesus talks about what does that look like? And he has all his teachings about the power of, of not retaliating but actually loving a neighbour and uh, loving an enemy and being able to um, not, res- not to push back when we are affronted with um, people who do the wrong thing by us. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, there's the story. It is a parable of the man who built his house on the rock, not the sand. Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount with the words, "And anyone who does these wo- who hears these words of mine and nods their head, no. Hears these words of mine and does them." You see, in Matthew, it's actually not just teaching that we absorb, it's people who say yes to following the way of Jesus, who become disciples. My understanding last week when uh, Don owes was speaking about the parable of the talents, which is often known about the parable of putting your gifts to good use, to be fruitful in the gifts that God has given us. That is certainly true, but it is not the point of the parable of the talents. The parable of the talents is the challenge of the gospel. You have been given the gospel, put it to use. If you have received the gospel, don't bury it in the ground and try and keep it pristine and safe. The gospel is to be put into practice. It's a missional parable. Those who say yes to following Jesus are saying yes to entering into the mission and ministry of Jesus. And the same point is made in this simile about the separating of the sheep and the goat. Dividing, and what is the point of dividing? Now again, the commentators often get an absolute twist about who are these little ones. Is it just talking about other believers? Should we just be doing, attending to the needs of other believers? Because that's how brothers and sisters are used elsewhere in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus says, these are my brothers and sisters, and so on. But it misses the point. The point is that you don't know. We don't know. And it's not for us to have to work out. um, Are you one of my brothers or sisters? Because I can respond to your thirst and your need. But if you're not, I'm sorry. I'm just going to walk past you. That is the complete opposite of what Jesus is saying. The whole question was, I didn't know what I was doing. was actually I was doing it for you. I just thought I was. there's a need there and I responded to it. That is precisely what Jesus is saying. To be about the mission and ministry of Jesus is not to discern who is worthy of our attention, providing succour and providing food and drink. It's actually doing it regardless. It does speak into a culture in our present day. It's always been there in cartoons and caricatures and in popular press and then it got into the airwaves or talkback radio and all the other things and now it has gone into a totally hyped up version on social media of people shaming others. These people are worthy, these people are not. These people are doing the right thing, those people are, you know, they are losers. Just forget and ignore them. And that culture, that language is just prolific in our present time and it is toxic. It's toxic. Within the church, we have a very similar danger. Some people describe it, and I think it's a good label, as a litmus test approach to things. That we want to just check whether the people that we are responding to, that we are seeing, are true believers. So we throw out our little litmus tests. For some areas, it's a theological question or two. Just tell us, you know, what do you think about eternal subordination of the Son? We're never told to throw out a litmus test to work out whether someone is a true believer, truly saved or not. For others, is, you know, tell me about your spiritual gifts and to decide whether you're spiritually received the Spirit or not. Jesus says, you don't need to know. Anyone who sees those who need a drink or the food or the respond and think, I'm pretty sure Jesus would respond to that, so that's what I'm going to do. They are the ones who hear these words of mine and do them. If you're unwilling to do them and you're not following Jesus and in his way, and Jesus says, then I have nothing to do with you. To follow me is to be about my work, my mission, my way in this world. And it is a confronting message. But it does tell us that when we say yes, it's a wholehearted, all of our being, everything we have, all that we are, yes, in seeking to hear and to put into practice the teaching of our Lord, the way of our Lord. So when we hear these words, we are to be mindful and not to walk on the other side of the road or not to decide, well, they brought it upon themselves and that's all their own fault or whatever else it may be but we are to be as Christ in the world around us. So as we come to Christ the King, let us hold on to those two truths, that the sovereignty of God is an assurance for us. Jesus has, is and will done all that is needed to bring about salvation and healing and peace within the world. So as we come back to where we started we realise that both of these collects reflect exactly these truths. Stir up, we beseech you, Lord, the wills of our faithful people, that, that they, that we, plentously bringing forth the fruit of good works, we have sought to do in your grace the work that you've given us to do. And then we live in that world in which we receive as well as that which we have offered. And then let us see, in the words of the collect, and we did say it at the beginning of the service, and I'm going to lead it now. And I invite you just to close your eyes and just to reflect on our own world. Just the, the, the news that shocked me in the last few weeks and the uh, Anglican Church is seeking to do what we can to contribute towards it. But you know, a world in which four women lost their lives as a result of domestic violence in 10 days. And it's just awful. We are in a world where we cry out and we realise that we as a community can respond and to contribute and to listen and to provide a safe sanctuary space for people. So I invite you to close your eyes and allow me just to pray this again because this gets to the heart of why we delight, take assurance, take comfort that Christ is the King. God of power and love, who raised your son Jesus from death to life, resplendent in glory to rule over all creation. Free the world to rejoice in his peace, to glory in his justice and to live in his love. Unite the human race in Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.